Welcome to Module 6 of Administrative Law. I'm Craig Forces. So far in these modules, we've discussed what administrative law is, and I've introduced you to the public law mantra. We've also examined how it is that our public law system is the way it is by tracing the key components of that public law system, stemming from the United Kingdom and North American influences. We've also drilled down and examined specifically the concept of separation of powers between the branches of the state and how this separation of powers explains the purpose and high-level operations of administrative law. Now we shift gears and start our march through the minutiae of Canadian administrative law. What I do in this module is provide a table of contents of sorts outlining how I have organized this course. This structure echoes that used in other places. When I designed this course, I sought to line it up with the way that the Law Society of Ontario approached the topic, and I've tinkered with this structure ever since. And in the tradition of self-help books, which always seem to enumerate lists of things that one must do to improve oneself in some way, I prefer to call this table of contents the seven steps to administrative law wisdom. And so let me propose to you that these seven steps are an excellent way to address a, a novel administrative law problem whenever you encounter it. They drive you through a useful diagnostic. In the practice modules for those registered in the full course, we perform that diagnostic with our two simulated case studies. All right, so the seven steps to administrative law wisdom. They're really divided into two categories. First, we have the three-question approach to the exercise of delegated power. Specifically, question one, to whom is the power delegated? Question two, what is the nature of the power delegated? And question three, how is the power to be exercised? And then we have the four-question approach to the control of the exercise of delegated power. Question one, who exercises the control? Question two, what procedure must be followed in seeking to control the exercise of delegated power? Question three, on what grounds is control exercised? And question four, what relief can be granted? Now, the three-question approach to the exercise of delegated power is really about the administrative decision-maker themselves. It is about the powers that they have. This is basically a more helpful embellishment of the show-me-the-power mantra. I mean, you only get so far in life wandering about confronting people and saying, show me the power. These three questions are a more nuanced way of assessing whether the power has been properly exercised. And we'll deal with these three questions here in this module. The four-question approach to the control of the exercise of delegated power is really about what you do when you conclude that the power has not been exercised properly. It's often about judicial review, although there can be intermediate administrative levels of appeal from an initial decision, a so-called statutory right of appeal, which is procedurally different from judicial review proceedings. We'll be talking about that. We'll be dealing with these four questions on the control of administrative decision-making in the next module. So let's begin with the first three questions, the three-question approach to the exercise of delegated power. So context. We should now understand the concept of delegation, at least from a theoretical perspective. Clearly, the primary mechanism of delegation of power is legislation. 
usually this legislation comes in the form of a statute of parliament. But statutes themselves can delegate legislative power, namely the power to create regulations. And if the statute so permits, these regulations themselves can be used to subdelegate further to another series of administrative decision makers. And so our starting point, the beginning point for any analysis of administrative law is the examination of the statute and any regulation that delegates power to some actor out there. Now, I appreciate that I've already said there are a handful of administrative actions that are justified by the royal prerogative, but those are rare and few and far between. And in, in this course, we really focus on delegations stemming from statute. An administrative lawyer absolutely must be comfortable analyzing legislation and analyzing legislation critically, whether this legislation comes in the form of statutes from parliament, primary legislation, or in the form of regulations, delegated or subordinate legislation. And so let me repeat this again. It's all about the statute and the regs. Let me put it another way. If you don't read the statute or regs, please go home. Or yet another way, no statute or regs, no correct answer. Many, many, many administrative law problems are answered by looking at the statute and any applicable regulations with not a judicial case in sight. Do I need to be any clearer? Find the relevant statutes and regulations and, oh, read them. After you, as an administrative lawyer, have identified the source of the delegated power, that is, you've found the right statute and the applicable regulations, Three questions should immediately spring to mind. You must read the legislation with these three questions in the front of that mind. These three questions are elemental prerequisites to understanding the exercise of delegated power. And they're also extremely commonsensical. They are, in fact, the three questions in this three-question approach. The first three questions in our seven steps to administrative law wisdom Number one, to whom is the power delegated? Number two, what is the nature of the power delegated? And number three, how is the power to be exercised? Whenever you confront an administrative law problem, you should have these three questions in front of you. And let's deal with each of them in turn. Number one, to whom is the power delegated? Well, the nature and identity of the persons and agencies to whom power is delegated can vary widely. For instance, Power may be delegated by a statute to a minister or to a civil servant. Power may be delegated to an independent regulatory agency or tribunal. Power may be delegated to cabinet, using the term we've seen before, governor and council at the federal level or lieutenant governor and council at the provincial level. Now, obviously, the person to whom the power is delegated is determined with reference to the delegating instrument, the statute or regulation, as the case may be. Again, read it. But in this module, let's focus on a more general, more abstract discussion of this to whom is the power delegated question. Are there any general administrative law rules that might have a role to play in determining to whom power may be delegated? Well, yes, there is one instance we should be alert to. What if one of these delegated decision makers wants to subdelegate their task to another person? Can the person to whom power is delegated further subdelegate that power? Well, the answer is, Maybe. It depends. There is, in administrative law, a general rule that unless authorized by the legislative instrument, a delegate may not subdelegate their powers to another. The Latin expression describing this concept is delegatus non potest delegare. It simply means a delegate may not delegate. 
So, for example, a tribunal given power to decide a matter must make the decision itself. It may not allow its decision to be made by anyone else. A liquor control board may be empowered to make a decision regarding liquor licenses. It can't turn around and, for example, tell a municipality to now make the decisions regarding pub liquor licenses, for example. But since this is law, there are exceptions to this rule, barring sub-delegation. Indeed, the rule isn't so much a rule as a question of statutory interpretation. Why? Because statutes regularly either expressly or impliedly allow subdelegation. And so let's enumerate some of the ways in which this rule is no rule at all and subdelegation is permitted. First, and most obviously, an express exception in the legislation. The statute itself may, when it confers the delegated power, expressly authorize the delegate to subdelegate that power to someone else. Now, of course, the scope of the subdelegation must conform to whatever standards are set out in the statute if it's to be proper, but if it is, then this is entirely permissible. Second, an implied power of cabinet and ministers. Cabinet, the governor and council, has an implied power to delegate its decision-making powers. Because of the nature of cabinet, it's assumed that the legislature did not intend that the full cabinet exercise all of the decision-making powers delegated to cabinet, again, using that expression, governor and council. Instead, cabinet's powers may be subdelegated to one or more cabinet committees. So, for example, there may be provisions and acts that talk about the governor and council doing X and that decisions must be made by the governor and council on Y. These decisions need not be performed by cabinet as a whole. There can be a committee that's tasked with making those decisions. In a similar fashion, and even absent the Interpretation Act, which we'll talk about in a second, ministers have an implied power to delegate their powers to deputy ministers and to officials and public servants in their ministry or department. This is known as the Carltona Doctrine, after the United Kingdom case enunciating it. There's a good reason for this. The minister's responsibilities are generally enormous. One cannot expect the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration, for example, to personally review every application for permanent residence in Canada. However, keep in mind, there may be powers delegated to the minister that are expected to be performed by the minister personally. These are powers that cannot be subdelegated. And so, for example, where a party has a right of appeal, from a departmental official to the minister themselves, that person is entitled to have the appeal decision made by the minister themselves. Deciding whether the power is one that the minister must themselves perform is again a question of statutory interpretation. Third in our list of exemptions to this concept of delegatis non potest delegare, there are in fact exemptions specified in the Interpretation Act, which is a federal statute. There are also provincial analogs that set general rules for understanding statutes. And the Interpretation Acts incorporate the Carltona Doctrine. And so at the federal level, section 24 sub 2, it says that words directing or empowering a minister to do an act or thing include among other things that minister's deputy doing the thing or act and also a person appointed to serve in the department or ministry of state over which the minister presides. And so officials within that hierarchy under the minister are generally entitled to perform those functions that the statute accords a minister. Again, with the exception being in those circumstances where the statutory context suggests that the minister themselves is obliged to perform that function. 
More generally, there's another provision, 24 sub 4, in the Interpretation Act at the federal level, which says that in a statute that confers power upon a public officer, that statute also impliedly confers power upon the officer's deputy. Now, just a footnote here on this delegating to your deputy sort of issue. We'll see that there are other administrative law rules beyond delegatus non potest delegari and its exceptions, which may limit the capacity of an official to delegate to one of their subordinates. There's something called procedural fairness, which exists at common law, and we'll spend almost half this course talking about it. This procedural fairness concept includes a prohibition on persons who have heard oral testimony, oral evidence, from delegating thereafter the decision-making function to someone who hasn't. There's a doctrine known as they who hear must decide. And so keep that in the back of your pocket. Just because a delegation is permissible under, say, the Interpretation Act, there may be further constraints on the circumstances in which subdelegation can take place. And last, in terms of our conversation about exceptions to the prohibition on subdelegation, there may be other implied powers of subdelegation that flow from a reading of the statute. And so again, it's an exercise in statutory interpretation. And amongst the considerations that courts have looked at in deciding whether there's an implied capacity to further subdelegate, well, the nature of the authority on whom the power is originally delegated. And so, for example, if the power is what we would call more judicial, it involves the adjudication of a decision in a manner that looks like the kind of thing that a court would do. That's the sort of circumstance where a court is likely to say, mm, an implied right to subdelegate is impermissible. There may also be consideration of the nature of the person to whom the purported subdelegation is made. For example, implied subdelegation is more likely to be permitted where the subdelegate is a person under the control of the original delegate and not just some extraneous third party. A third consideration, the nature and extent of the power delegated to the original delegate. Generally, the more the power that's given through a delegation, the less likely it is that the subdelegation will be regarded as impliedly permissible under the statute. And a related concept is the extent of the subdelegation. A subdelegation is more likely to be permissible as implied under a statute where it involves only a part of the total power delegated to the original delegate. It is much more likely to be permitted where the subdelegation includes specific criteria for when the subordinate can exercise the powers. So that's really all I'm going to say about the first question, question number one, to whom is the power delegated? That leads us then to question number two, what is the nature of the power delegated? Now the statute is likely to say what exactly the role of the delegate is to be. And the statute will delegate power to perform this function, particularly to make decisions relating to that function. As we'll see repeatedly in this course, decision-making power may be broad or it may be more constrained. There will be a spectrum of delegated power. Let's look at two examples on this spectrum. Sometimes the decision isn't really a decision at all. It is something that the delegate must do if certain prerequisite conditions are met. Look there for the use of the word shall in the statutory provision. Here, the power of decision may be a power to perform a purely and truly administrative function, such as issuing a driver's license. The candidate shall receive a driver's license if they correctly respond to the written test and they pass the on-road test. There's no discretion. There's no choice to be made. You meet the criteria and the administrative decision maker must issue the driver's license. And so this would be one end of the spectrum. 
Here, there is no real discretion. There's no choice to be made. It is purely what we would call an administrative process in the classic sense, just connecting the dots. On the other hand, on the other side of the spectrum, the decision-making power that is delegated may be a very broad one that includes the exercise of discretion. Look for the word may in the statute. I gave you an example of this in a prior module. We looked at the Aeronautics Act and we looked at the capacity of the minister there to give a security clearance to an applicant. There were no statutory constraints on the minister's capacity to do so. It was simply a decision that the minister was empowered to make. In other instances, as we also saw in the prior module, the discretion may be more fettered. It lies in the middle of our spectrum of delegated powers. And so you may find statutes specifying that the delegate may act where it is of the opinion that action would be in the public interest or where it is in the opinion that some other consideration is true or the power to act depends on certain facts being established. And so here the delegate's power is fettered, fettered by these conditions. Now you should appreciate, of course, that between the two poles of purely administrative and mechanical and on the other end of the pole, unfettered discretionary delegation, there's an almost infinite set of gradients of delegated powers with varying degrees of fetters or preconditions. And so it's necessary to read the statute to determine exactly what the power is that's been delegated and how much power has been in fact delegated. This question two morphs into question three. Question three, how is the power to be exercised? And so this is a very closely related question to the one we just looked at, looked at the nature of the power exercised. As we'll see, the nature of the power exercised may determine how the power is to be exercised. Basically, this third question of how the power is to be exercised really has two subcategories. First, what is the procedure to be followed in the exercise of power? And so procedural standards. And second, what substantive standards are to be used in exercising the power? So this would be the sub-question relating to substantive standards. And we have to ask these questions with reference to four different sources of law. Obviously, the statute, but also the common law, the constitution, and potentially other statutes that might have an effect on exactly how it is that the administrative decision maker is supposed to exercise their power. Each of these sources has something to say that could be relevant in answering question three in our three-step approach here. So first, statute. What is the procedure to be followed in the exercise of power? That may be specified in the statute itself. It may prescribe procedural standards that decision makers are supposed to follow. That matters. And so you have to be attentive to any procedural standards that are found in the statute or the regulation. And as I've suggested already, the statute may impose fetters that determine when and how power may be exercised substantively. You do not actually have the power to make a decision until the following facts are true. That may be prescribed by the statute as well. And so those fetters exist by virtue of the statute, which accords the decision maker power in the first place. Read the statute. Second, 
We can't stop with the statute delegating the power. We have to look also at other statutes that may circumscribe what it is the delegates are allowed to do and how it is that they're allowed to do things. And so in Ontario, there's a special supplemental statute that applies to at least some delegated decision-making called the Statutory Powers Procedures Act, or the SPPA. And it tells you a lot about how the power is to be exercised by Ontario administrative decision-makers. Now, it's a provincial statute. It applies only to the provincial executive. And so be wary here. Do not and I see this regularly, assume that the provincial provisions in the provincial statutes like the SPPA apply to federal decision makers. They do not. And so keep in mind your division of powers in the state. At the federal level, there are sections of what's known as the Canadian Bill of Rights of 1960, which do prescribe certain procedural protections in the circumstances in which they apply. These Procedural protections in the Canadian Bill of Rights apply only at the federal level to the federal executive or those exercising power pursuant to a federal statute. They do not apply at the provincial level. Next, the Constitution may have provisions that apply to tell administrative decision makers how to proceed. For example, the Charter has certain procedural protections. We'll see that Section 7 of the Charter, in its language of fundamental justice, are of considerable relevance in determining the procedure that delegates must follow when Section 7 is, in fact, applicable. There are only a narrow range of circumstances where Section 7 applies. It is deeply incorrect, and I want to emphasize this, it is deeply incorrect to assume the automatic application of Section 7 of the Charter to all administrative problems. It applies, actually, relatively rarely when what I call trigger requirements for the application of Section 7 are met, and we'll spend some time on that. And then last but not least, in answering the question, how is the power to be exercised, we have to pay immense attention to the common law, because the common law tells you a lot about how the power is to be exercised. The courts at common law have developed rules that supplement whatever's found in a statute. They cannot at common law contradict those rules in a statute, but they can supplement the silence of the statute and graft procedural and substantive expectations on how it is that administrative decision makers are to exercise their powers. And so where the statute is silent on procedural or substantive standards on the exercise of power, the common law will often fill that gap and elevate expectations about how it is that power should be exercised. And so really, we're going to focus in this class on procedural and substantive constraints on decision makers that stem from common law. At the procedural level, we'll start by talking about the concept of natural justice, a more antiquated phrase used to describe the procedural expectations that are imposed on judicial and quasi-judicial officials that have come with the passage of time to morph into a more generic concept of procedural fairness. However, whether it's called natural justice or procedural fairness, there are two broad classes of procedural protections provided by the common law. The first is called the right to be heard in Latin, audiultrum partum, the right to be heard. And the second, which goes in Latin by the name of nemo judex, the right to an unbiased decision maker. At a high level, these are the two procedural guarantees that the common law extends as part of the administrative law of Canada. And so again, the right to be heard and the right to an unbiased decision maker. We will spend almost half of this course fleshing in the details as to what that really means in practice. 
And then in terms of substantive standards that exist at common law, first I pause and I ask the question again, what do we mean by substantive standards? Basically, these are preconditions or expectations about how it is the power is to be exercised. We would call these fetters on discretion. And so the statute and regulations, yes, they may specify fetters, but even if they do not, there are certain expectations that the courts at common law will have about how it is that delegated power is to be exercised. We can't stop at the statute. And so, for example, courts have imposed expectations about delegates not abusing their discretion. And courts have prescribed limitations on the ability of the delegate to misconstrue law or make errors of fact in a way that then influences their decision making. And we'll spend a good portion of the course trying to figure out exactly what courts have done in that space. And so that's our three-question approach to the exercise of delegated power. Who is a delegate? Look to the statute. Identify the delegates. Make sure there hasn't been improper subdelegation of power. Second, what is the nature of the power delegated? Is it simply a technical administrative power that gives the delegate very little choice? The delegate must issue a license if certain preconditions are met, etc., etc. Or is it a more discretionary decision that gives the delegate a lot of choice? How broad is that discretion? Is it fettered by conditions or is it unfettered? And then third, how is the power to be exercised? What procedural standards on the exercise of power are set out in the act delegating power in the first place? What substantive standards are set out in that act? What procedural standards may exist in the Constitution or in other statutes like the SPPA and the Canadian Bill of Rights? What procedural standards exist by virtue of the common law? And what substantive standards on the exercise of power also exist at common law? And so if you pull these three steps together, you have a much more useful embellishment of the show me the power mantra. In the next module, we examine what happens if the nuanced answer to your now more nuanced mantra done through the application of these three questions comes back and it turns out, whoops, there is a problem here. This ends module six.